Will you turn with me, please, to the passage for this morning's message found in the book of Malachi, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Malachi, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung upon your faces, the dung of your offerings, and I will put you out of my presence. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may hold, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear. And he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I have make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in your instruction. Last week we took a good bit of time to establish the relevance of this text for 20th century church and pastoral ministry. I argued from the book of Hebrews that there is no more official priesthood in the Christian church. Jesus Christ is our high priest who sacrificed himself once for all so that there is no more sacrificial ministry within the church. He reigns and intercedes for us in heaven today, applying his own blood to our sin that we might be accepted with the Father. And therefore, the whole priesthood is ended, except insofar as we are all a priesthood with access to God in him. But we noticed in verse 7 of this text that that wasn't the only task of the priest, namely to sacrifice. Let's read verse 7. The lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. In other words, priests were teachers and not just sacrificers. And that's why the text is relevant today. This text addresses ministers of the word. And it shows that they can fail miserably and grievously and that they can succeed gloriously. That's what the text is about. That's why it's so relevant, because it's all around us today. Ministerial failure and success. I ended with an overview last time and began what I want to begin this morning, namely a list of these failures and then turn to the success of the ministry. Let me give you that overview again. Verses 2, 8, and 9 give us five failures in the priestly ministry, five pastoral failures. Verses 5, 6, and 7 describe the success of the ministry of the word what it's supposed to look like. 
And the thing I didn't mention last week were the threats made against the priests, the pastors, to sanction the commands in verses 5 to 7 and to redeem them and get them to clean up their act with regard to their failures. And those threats are found in verses 2, 3, and 9. And it may be well to begin right here. Let's just start with the threats. And that we start here because they're given mainly, not for themselves, but to awaken these failing priests, rescue them from destruction, and bring them to success. Here's the lesson I get from these threats before I look at them in detail. Pastors, ministers of the word, will not be spared judgment in the last day. It's occurred to me this week as I've pondered this, that when I stand before Christ at the last day, every one of these sermons will be thrown on the table before the judge. And Romans 2.21 will be read in the courtroom as I stand before Christ. It goes like this. You who taught others... Did you not teach yourself? Think long and hard before you envy your pastors at the last day. James said, let not many of you become teachers, for they will be judged with greater strictness. Now let's read these threats. Verses 2 and 3, and then I'll drop down to verse 9. If you will not listen, if you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse on you. I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offering or your seed, perhaps referring to the crops, and spread dung on your faces. The dung of your sacrifices I will put and I will put you out of my presence. Now down to verse nine. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in your teaching. Now, there are four threats in those three verses. Number one, verse two, I will curse them. Number two in verse two. I will make your blessings a curse. That is, I I think he means the words that you speak, which are intended to be the blessing of the people. I'm going to turn them into a plague upon the people. Number three, in verse three, I'm going to rebuke your offspring or your crops, perhaps. The word seed could go either way there. In other words, the curse is going to spread far beyond you, whether to your children or to your land. And finally, number four, I am going to smear the dung of these mangy, broken-legged, blind sheep in your face. Or as verse 9 explains, I'm going to make you despised and contemptible among the people. Now, why is God so angry? You know he's angry, don't you? 
I mean, when you talk about smearing dung in somebody's face, you're not dealing dispassionately with some minor disobedience. You're on the brink of rage. Nothing is more horrible to imagine than the beauty of holiness turning against you with omnipotent rage, which is what's happening in these verses towards the pastors of Israel. He is angry because of five failures. Let's look at them. Number one, the failure of listening to God or failing to listen to God. Verse two, if you will not listen, it's a failure because you can't herald what you can't hear. Number two, the failure to have a heart for the glory of God. Verse two again, next phrase. If you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord. And that's the root of the matter, brothers and sisters. We're going to see more clearly than ever this morning as we move to the success. That's the root of the matter. A pastor who has no heart for the glory of God is a failure, no matter how full his church is, nor wide his ministry. Number three. They have turned aside from the ways of God and live lives out of sync with the teaching of God. Look at the first line of verse eight. You have turned aside from the way and look again at verse nine. I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you have not kept my ways. So the third failure is the failure of practicing what they preach. Their lives are way over here. They're not walking with God. They say one thing and they're doing another thing. Number four, they have shown partiality in teaching. The last line of verse nine. You have not walked in my ways, but you have shown partiality in your instruction. Now, what does that mean? It means that they are doing the very same thing with the word of God that they did with the sacrifices of God. You remember what that was? They gave just those animals to God that would leave maximum money in their pockets. Broken legged sheep, blind sheep, mangy sheep. You can't sell them. Give them to God and keep your pockets full. And that's exactly what they're doing with their teaching. They give precisely that teaching to their congregations that will keep their pockets full. They play to their audience. They tell Daddy Warbucks what he wants to hear. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They do what Micah chapter 3, verse 11 describes. The heads of Jerusalem give judgment for bribe. Its priests teach for hire. You hear that? Its priests teach for hire. Its prophets divine for money. When the glory of God no longer satisfies the heart of a preacher, he can do two things. Leave the ministry or stay and preach for money. Would that they all lift. Number five. The failure 
of what results from all of this. In the middle of verse 8, do you see it? You have caused many to stumble. Let me ask you this. Do you think the sins of pastors, Christian leaders, are more grievous than the sins of others? I do. Not because a sin in and of itself is of a different nature or quality, but rather because the sin of Christian leaders is compounded by the fact that the weight of public responsibility should all the more have hindered it. And he didn't let it hinder it. I don't know if you've opened up yet this week's Christianity Today. It's in our library. I commend it to you. There are two or three articles on the sins of Christian leaders and whether they can be restored. And there is a short article by David Neff, the associate editor. And here's what he says. The leader who philanders has broken a trust placed in him by a wide community, trusting his vision, reliability, wisdom, and veracity. And the essence of leadership is that trust. And so a leader who violates trust in a fundamental and public manner is ipso facto no longer a leader. And I believe he's right. Now, I want to turn so badly to the uh, success of the pastoral ministry, but before we, we get there, I want to apply what I've said so far to those of you here today who have been victims of priestly failure. I have in mind people who have seen in the ministers of the word enough hypocrisy and expediency and inconsistency and worldliness and partiality and greed and cowardice and pettiness and harshness and insensitivity that you have stamped a big question mark over the whole Christian enterprise. You have built a wall, perhaps, in your soul, in your heart, that keeps out Anything from the Christian world because you just aren't sure you want to have anything to do with that mess anymore. Now, there is a word in this text to people like that here this morning. And I want to paraphrase it as as best I can. Let me paraphrase what I think God is saying to that kind of person here this morning. The victims of priestly failure. Here's what he's saying. I... Hate ministerial hypocrisy 10,000 times more than you do. And I intend to spread dung on the faces of ministerial hypocrites. Those who have forsaken my glory, departed from my ways, teach for hire and cause people to stumble. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Don't carry it. Don't carry it. It is mine. 
And I will repay with vengeance vastly worse than you can imagine in your little vindictive moments. What a tragedy it would be this morning if anyone turned away from the glory, the unimpeachable glory of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, because of a hypocritical demeanor or a failure of one of his messengers when God himself intends to spread dung on the face of that minister because he loves you and hates it when his glory is profaned. Wouldn't that be an ironic tragedy if you let that hypocrite drag you to hell with him? Don't let that happen. Don't let Satan use his lightning-cloaked ministers of the word to drag you to hell with them. That's what he's saying in this text to victims of priestly failure. Let's go to success. Enough of that. Let's look at what it's supposed to be. It's in verses 5 to 7. And I want to, I want to describe a tree this morning. I've been so helped when I get images like this, I can remember them so much better, and it really helps me pray. There is a tree. It's the ministry of the word. It has a root that's deep. It has a trunk that's strong. It has branches that are very broad, and it has fruit that is life-given. It's all right there in verses 4 or 5 to 7, and I want to show you what they are. First of all, let's go to the root. What is the root of success in the ministry of the word? The answer is, it is a covenant between God and the pastor. Described in verses 4 and 5. Let's read it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi. Now, Levi is the son of Jacob from whom the Levitical and priestly ministry comes. That it might hold, says the Lord of hosts, my covenant with him was a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear. And he feared me and stood in awe of my name and their success. Now, let's stand back a minute and look at this covenant. You know what a covenant is. A covenant is a transaction between two parties in which each have obligations to fulfill. When God makes a covenant, he takes the initiative, which he did here. Let's ask, what's God's part of the covenant and what's the pastor's part of the covenant? And I wish I had time to share with you what I have found in the New Testament Because when I read this, I said, now, is there in the New Testament a Levitical covenant? That is, a covenant with the ministry of the word. And I have found it. Just read the pastoral epistles asking, where are there covenantal statements between God and Timothy? Or between God and the minister of the word? But can't talk about that. No time. Let's ask about the text here. What is God's side of this covenant? Answer, he called them, the Levites, to the ministry of the word. He promises them life and peace. Not only does he promise it, it says he took the initiative, went ahead and gave it to them so that they might do their ministry. Now, what is the response that is required in the covenant of the pastor? Two things. He fears God. He must fear God and he must stand in awe of his name. Let's just read verse five to get it real clear again before our eyes. 
My covenant with him was a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them life and peace to him. That's God's initiative. That he might fear. That's the aim of the covenant on man's side. And here's the success. He feared me and stood in awe of my name. Now, do you hear the contrast between this success and the failure of verse 2? What does verse 2 say in the second phrase? If you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts. That's priestly failure. No heart for the glory of God. And what's the root of priestly success? Levi feared and stood in awe of the name of God. That's the root of all successful ministry. Without it, there is no successful ministry of the word. I don't care how big the churches get or how wide the ministry spreads. That's the root, the glory of God and the awe and the trembling in which the minister stands toward it. What's the trunk of the ministry of the word? The trunk of the tree of the ministry of the word is a commitment to defend and proclaim the truth of God's word. A commitment to defend, I'm choosing these words carefully, defend and proclaim the truth of God's word. It's in verse 7 and verse 6. Let's read verse 6 first of all. The first phrase. True instruction was in his mouth. There's the focus on truth. Now verse 7. The lips of a priest should guard knowledge. Now, that word guard is where I got the word defend. The priest is to defend or guard against misuse, abuse, distortion, the word of God. He should guard knowledge. Read on. Men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That's where I get the idea of proclaim. You see, a priest is a lawyer and he's a herald. The lawyer defends the case of God. He says, don't you dare make it mean that when it means this. And therefore, he argues his case in the courtroom of the assembly. But he's not just a lawyer. He's a hear ye, hear ye, hear ye herald in the streets of the city. That's I get I get that from the phrase a messenger of the Lord. Now. The crucial thing to see here is that he gets his message from the Lord. It's the word of God that he preaches, not the word of the newspaper or the magazines or the TV or his own imagination. It's God's word that he proclaims. So what's the trunk? The trunk of the tree is the fibers of the word of God. The word of God cannot be broken. So if you've got fibers of God's word in your ministry, it can't be broken. Now, did you see the contrast here? Have you heard the contrast between verse 2 and the failure of verse 2? What was the first failure mentioned in verse 2? If you will not listen to what? God. The fibers in the trunk of the tree are the word of God. And the strength of that trunk is the commitment of the minister to defend and proclaim. That holy and infallible word. The root is reverence for the glory of God. The 
The strength of the trunk is faithfulness to the word of God. What are the branches? I'd love if this were a Sunday evening. I'd just have you tell me. we'd, We'd get this out of the text without my just talking to you. But I guess I'll be a herald this morning. The branches are the piety and the holiness of the preacher. The piety and holiness of the preacher. Now, those are not common words, so let me use some other words. The branches are the devotional life or the life of devotion to God and the private and public life of righteousness in the preacher. No ministry is successful where a life is out of sync with the message. Middle part of verse 6, if you want to look at it with me. No wrong was found on his lips, talking about the preacher Levi. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. The minister of the word must walk with God. And as he walks with God, he must be upright and peaceable in his nature. And his mouth must not have anything foul or false or malicious. He must be transparent, full of integrity, forthright, faithful in all of his dealings, lest he bring disrepute upon the message of the word of God. So the root of the tree of the ministry of the word is the glory of God. The trunk of the tree of the ministry of the word is the word of God. And the branches of the tree of the ministry of the word are the extension of the righteousness of God. Now, what's the fruit? What is the fruit that comes from a life of ministry like that? And if you're tracking with me, you could all give it to me right out of verse six, couldn't you, at the end? He turned many from iniquity. Salvation from sin is the fruit of the ministry of the word. And how my heart just fills up to see that happen in Bethlehem. I want so much for you to be saved. And I believe salvation is the fruit of persevering faith in the glory and the word and the righteousness of God. The failure is the exact opposite, is it not? Look at verse 8. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You see how opposite that is from he turned many from iniquity? A glorious success means the salvation of sinners. And a miserable failure means many are drugged to eternal destruction. The weight upon the minister of the word is incalculable. When your ministry is rooted in the glory of God and your life is committed to the word of God and your life extends the righteousness of God, this text holds out great hope that salvation of God will happen. Would you bow with me in prayer?
And I just want to have a moment of silence while I commend to you a possible resolution. There are 46 days left in 1987. And I would like to put in our little star mailing this week a one-sentence summary of this sermon in the form of a prayer. And ask you right now to pray whether you might commit yourself to take 10 seconds a day for the rest of this year to pray. Here's what the prayer is going to sound like. Oh God, grant that the glory of God and the word of God and the righteousness of God would so fill this church that people would turn away from sin and receive the salvation of God right here in this room and all over this city. So just ask the Lord whether you might commit yourself with me to pray that prayer 46 times before December 31st. Because I believe God would do a great work. You know, Advent is a great season. A lot of visitors come to church, a lot of people who need Jesus. God could do an amazing, reviving, awakening work in our midst. And there's some of you probably who just need to get right with the glory of God and the word of God and forsake some sins of your own. So pray about that for about 10 seconds here before we close. Amen.